Let's go ahead and start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're, we're going to start this sort of second section of our Introduction to Moral Theology class by doing an analysis of sort of the history of moral theology. Um, this is one of the things that Father Pinkairs uh, really bases his book on, as hopefully you've read some of it, that if we're going to understand the situation we face today, or that we've faced, let's say, within the past 50 to 60 years, we're going to have to look at the history of moral theology, which in the tradition of the church, generally dogmatics and, and systematics have been looked at sort of historically, but not too much moral theology. And so this was what he tried to do in the mid-80s in the sources of Christian ethics by looking at how we got to where we are. And what I want to do in our two weeks, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at this in eight separate lessons. We really want to begin by looking at Vatican II and the call for reform and renewal of moral theology amongst other aspects of theology in the church the council call for, but we're going to have to also look at what came before. Um, and I want to particularly focus, let's say, on the 50 to 100 years that came before and what was going on in theology and the church. Uh, we're going to sort of circle back to that as we go forward when we begin to look at the manuals and the nominalists and casuistry. Um, but today we're going to generally focus on those decades before Vatican II and Vatican II itself. But we've got to talk a little bit about the importance of the Second Vatican Council. Um, the beginning of the 20th century historically, again, this is a super brief overview. Um, we see the beginning of the 20th century, there were, there were winds of change like the Scorpion Song, happening in society and happening also in the church. Uh, So you primarily sort of can see it through the impacts of the two world wars on Europe and the church. The Shoah, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the, the nuclear age. And then after that, you have the formation of this United Nations and the New World Order, Uh, and sort of a global effort to promote peace and harmony among nations after so much carnage and years of fighting, particularly in Europe. So there was this new, uh, in Europe, and I guess around the world, uh, fraternal spirit, and everyone had realized that the old order had passed away. Uh, If you read, what's that book, The Guns of August, which is this great introduction to World War I, uh, the author begins by describing the, the funeral of uh, Archduke Ferdinand and just the, all these different individuals there from these European nations and these empires with all their regalia and people carrying them and fancy different sort of uh, automobiles and different, uh, not automobiles, but different sort of carriers and, and, and transports. It's all gone. It's all gone. And so the church had to sort of come to terms with that. Um, something, this European 
ancient regime that it had taken into it herself. And within the church, over the course of the 75 years before the council, actually probably more like 100, we could see a number of currents rise within the church. And I'm sure you've studied this before, but it's important to understand. This desire to return to the biblical sources, the Kobiblik in Jerusalem, uh, sort of a willingness to accept the historical critical method and the discovery a lot of the ancient Mesopotamian texts like the Enuma Elish that sort of put or forces to put scripture within this deeper historical context. So it was a renewed study of the original languages uh, and trying to understand the, the, the importance of scripture. There was a liturgical renewal going on also, um, a desire to reform the liturgy, a push for the vernacular, uh, to make the, the liturgy more accessible to the people. Um, there was also a Thomistic renewal with the Maritage, saw the neo-scholasticism of the late 19th, early 20th century, and to sort of the collapse of a comprehensive philosophy in on the continent, a desire to put something together. Um, and so while the renewal of Thomism was a good thing, an important thing, and something the church picked up on, of course, the effort failed. Um, we have not come up with a comprehensive philosophy as of now. And then I think also very importantly for the Second Vatican Council, the rise of the Nouvelle Theologie, de Lubac, Congar, uh, Danny Lou, Bon Balthazar, uh, and their ressourcement of getting back to the, the, the fathers of the church, to the resources, to the, the, the ideas that helped the church grow. Um, these theologians had a very big impact on um, the Second Vatican Council. And then finally, I think in general, kind of like a, a push for a less defensive stance. Hey, listen, you know, we've, we've been sort of on the defensive since Trent, battling, you know, the Protestant worldview and modernism. Let's sort of have a little bit more engagement with the model wor modern world. And it's all culminated uh, when Pope St. John XXIII called the Second Vatican Council in 59, convened it in 62, and concluded it in 65. He wanted that aggiornamento to bring the church up to date, bring some open the windows to bring fresh air into the church. How many of y'all have ever seen the, the pictures of St. Peter's with Vatican II and the corresponding drawings or, or paintings of the bishops of Vatican I? Have you ever seen that? Radically different. And Vatican I was held just in the right transept of St. Peter's, which is as big as it is but it took the whole entire nave for Vatican II. So you had bishops from all over the world because of planes and the, the, the frequency of travel and communication could come and actually participate in a way that Vatican I simply wasn't. I, I think just looking at that showed uh, how differently things had changed in society and culture. Of course, we could also add, yes, travel and communication, all these things helped to really bring about uh, the postmodern state that we have today. And although Vatican II didn't deal extensively or really directly with moral theology, it was a decisive turning point in its development and where we are today. And we're going to get into that, but I want to make a few statements, and, and, and I just want to put this out right here as we begin. 
about the validity and importance of Vatican II. Uh, Granted, I wasn't alive then, but I do know from my studies that before and during and even after the council, there was a great hope for renewal in the church for this encounter and dialogue with the modern world, not always attacking, not always critiquing. But as we know, complete and utter chaos ensued afterwards. Complete and utter chaos within the church. And part of it was, is because it just so happened to coincide, or at least the reforms and implementation of the, count, implementation of the council, with this time of radical cultural upheaval, a sexual revolution, the rise in the, the young people of this Marxist ideology. And so you saw a lot of this seep into the church, liturgical abuses, descent on humani vitae, priests and nuns leaving in droves. So the council ended in 65, I entered the seminary in 94. And so this was just about 30 years after. And, and I lived through, as being born in the 70s and growing up in the 80s, a lot of the, the insanity of what went on, not because of Vatican II, but what we call the spirit of Vatican II. Do you also use that phrase, the spirit of Vatican II? You know, I saw the clown masses, I saw the puppet masses, you know, I saw all of that kind of stuff. But there was only a fringe, at least during my time in seminary, that actually blamed the council. They could see that there were certain things that could have maybe been phrased differently or certain assumptions that weren't there. And yeah, there were certain characters that probably had nefarious intents, but very few people blamed the council. The spirit of the council. And so John Paul II made it to sort of a bitch mark of his whole entire pontificate of trying to um, right the ship. Church in the 70s and 80s, well, I was going all over the place. And John Paul II, as someone who was heavily involved in the council and his anthropology and his thinking about the human person influenced a lot of the documents, um, tried to, with his teaching, give a legitimate interpretation of the council, along with Ratzinger, although he wasn't a bishop at the time, was still theologically uh, very involved, and sort of giving that legitimate interpretation and implementation of the council. Ratzinger's big thing was the reform of the reform. I don't know if y'all know that phrase. We're going to reform the liturgical reform. We're going to kind of get back to what really ought to happen. But what I've noticed now, and maybe it's not as big of a thing as, as it is, but there's now, it tends to be, uh, a real questioning of the validity of Vatican II. I'm wanting to go before Vatican II, that the council was wrong in itself. Uh, the roots, of course, probably in reaction to, to Francis. Uh, I think amongst young people, a desire for nostalgia, for this age when there was order and structure and all these wonderful good things. And even now, we see a lot of it being very liturgical. There's no longer a reform of the reform. We just want to get rid of the reform. We want to go back to the way it was. We want the old mass. We want the the clear-cut way that theology uh, and the church life seem to have been done. So it becomes sort of very anachronistic. Um, And I'm not going to get into a protracted discussion about this. Do you all have classes on Vatican II and are incorporating it? The point is, 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 and we could have this question another time, the council needed to happen. The council needed to happen, and it's a legitimate council, uh, even though it was not 
dogmatic as much as it was sort of ecumenical. Uh, it wasn't as dogmatic as it was pastoral. It was important. Things were not implemented perfectly after. And sometimes after a council, it takes a century or two to get it right. But as I said before, if everything was so wonderful in 1955, why did, after two years, it all collapse? It all collapsed. It's because, and I think you can make a strong argument, it looked really nice on the outside, but there was nothing on the inside. Nothing on the inside. And so this idea that we're going to go back before the council, and particularly when you look at the realm of moral theology, uh, I'm not too sure that if we understand it properly, we'd really want to go back to that. I'm going to make a few suggestions, of, and again, this is very brief, about some of the stuff that, that needed to change. Have you ever, any of you ever read Raising the Bastions? So this is a book written by Bob Balthazar in 52. Small little book, a wonderful book, uh, sort of programmatic, actually. And he said, things have got to change. It's just not working out. Um, and when you look at it, he's like prescient in what he... He saw it was coming. Um, he wanted to call for change, a less defensive position, saw the spirit positively moving. So a lot of this wasn't just theologians who were like, we need a change. They saw the movement of the spirit in a way they believed the church was guiding them. And so many wonderful good quotes. Uh, one of them that really struck me as I was trying to give one to give to y'all, he said, the immense transformation in Christian consciousness that must come about on the basis of this insight, and he talks about sort of this interior, exterior dimension of the church, is a transformation from possessor to giver, from usufructory, the one who just sort of uses something, to apostle, from privileged person to responsible person. Now you saw the church was the, you know, hey, we've been, we've been given the, the teaching. We're going to hear, just tell you how to do it, instead of this really evangelical, apostolic endeavor uh, that, that raised the bastions, that tore the walls of the church down, and instead of saying, you people come in, well, we're going to go out to you, and we're going to try to be able to evangelize you for Christ. The other thing that we have to acknowledge, and I think I put a link to this, about uh, th there's so much on this that's out there. Just one that continuously strikes me is uh, Father Gerald Fitzgerald who was this priest, uh, Irish priest, who worked, I think it was out of New Mexico uh, in the 40s, and he had a, like a rehab center for alcoholic priests. But he began to notice that most of the priests were there were pedophiles. They were child molesters. That They were sick individuals. And he, this is the 40s, y'all. This is the 40s and the 50s. Wrote to the bishops, wrote to the Vatican, y'all have got to do something. He even suggested putting them on an island Nothing was done. Nothing was done. So a majority of the priests who caused a lot of this abuse were ordained before the council. Granted, a lot of guys left. But this idea that everybody was the, the, the priest from the Bells of St. Mary's? No. The sickness was already there, and it wasn't being dealt with. And there are a lot more things that we could point to. The one that we're going to focus on is the significant issues with the formation of priests particularly in the area of moral theologies because of the moral manuals of the time. We're going to go back to this uh, when we sort of look at the, the centuries of the church after, um, after Occam and the nominalist. But this manualist tradition, so the idea that, that, that in, theolo in seminaries, 
basically each class, you had a manual that systematized theology. And so most moral theology wasn't taught the, the acting person. It wasn't, you know, freedom or virtues. It was these moral manuals that were integral in the seminary system that really was renewed after Trent and had to be renewed, had to be renewed. But it took this very defensive position to protect seminarians from the spirit of the age. I mean, y'all think you don't like your, 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 your weekends that y'all are trapped here? Y'all have been trapped all the time. There was really very little communication with the outside world, which I think allowed a lot of the problems to be hidden and bred a certain form of clericalism. But these manuals were produced in order to help professors teach seminarians and for priests who would eventually become confessors. That when people would come to confession, basically they would spit out their sins and you would be able to go to your little manual and say, well, plug these sins in, you get three Hail Marys, or this is right or wrong, or these are the sins that you've committed. One of the, and I'm, I am not an expert on the, the history of the genesis of these, these manuals, although you can go to the, the library and look at some of them. One of the ones in the English-speaking language that was the most popular, well-used, was by an author named Thomas Slater, Father Thomas Slater, a manual of moral theology for English-speaking countries. And this is from 1906. The manuals of moral theology are, this is a quote from his book, the manuals of moral theology are technical works which is interesting when you look at this sort of technical mentality, intended to help the confessor and the parish priest in the discharge of their duties. They are as technical as the textbooks of the lawyer and the doctor. They're not intended for edification, nor do they hold up a high ideal of Christian perfection for the imitation of the faithful. They deal with what is of obligation under the pain of sin. They are books of moral pathology. Again, you're, you're looking at these, and we're going to see a few of the ideas that someone comes in. We're looking at sin. What is your sin? How culpable are you? What are you going to be? What's going to be your penance? It wasn't how to become holy, how to become a saint. It was dealing with illness and ailments. Yes. Oh, uh, so maybe that'll be later. But it seems because he says that <clears throat> he's implying that he's saying that the not, not necessarily, no. I mean, possibly he does, but, but well, actually we're going to get to that because I think that comes to the sort of the separation we already saw a scene of the separation of moral theology and spirituality. I'm not going to say he's necessarily going to supplement it. Oh, you're going to deal with that over there in spirituality. We're just focusing on moral theology here. So that's part of the deeper problem of the separation of these two, along with dogmatics and along with philosophy. And so you can see how this, this casuistry, um, the stuff that came out of the result of nominalism in the 20th century, <coughs> lasted in the 20th century. Ratzinger, if you read the, the essay that I gave you, talks about how it was heavily influenced not so much by sacred scripture or by faith or by tradition. This had a sacred scripture had a marginal function in the elaboration of moral theology, rather by rationalism rationalism, a rationalistic approach to philosophy and theology. He says, constructed substantially on the foundation of natural law, which of course we're going to see is valid, and therefore in the form of a philosophical reflection based on the ancient Stoic tradition that had in large measure had been appropriated uh, by Christianity throughout history. So taking this uh, uh, philosophical tradition, this rationalist approach, 
where we're going to be able to analyze morality according to the natural law without really taking into consideration faith. And, and so the classic manuals, and we're going to go back and see this, had four basic parts or divisions. Um, this is according to, to Father Pinkairs. Human acts, the first one. Laws, the second part. Conscience, the third part. And sin, the fourth part. Now, they would also often deal with particular moral theology by looking at theological virtues and obligations, the Ten Commandments, and the precepts of the church and canonical requirements. Now, again, I have not done a history of the, the, the manuals. Um, it's not my area of expertise, but we do know that with the rise of this neo-scholasticism, uh, a push for Thomism at the end of the 19th century, and in some of the manuals, wanted to organize more around the virtues rather than the commandments. But still, the main focus tended to be sin and prohibitions. Ratzinger, again, the older type of moral theology no longer allowed people to see the great message of liberation and freedom given to us in the encounter with Christ. Rather, it stressed above all the negative aspects of so many prohibitions, so many no's. There are no doubt present in Catholic ethics, but they are no longer presented for what they really are, the concretization of a great yes. So Ratzinger is saying that not only moral theology, but in general, the church is no, 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 no. Instead of, hey, yeah, there are certain things that are unacceptable, but they come as a result of the great yes to Jesus Christ, the belief of the gospel. Now, Pink Ayers will, will go on to say, and he's going to, we've already looked at this somewhat, but he's going to say this attitude, and we're going to have to really get into the, the philosophy that led to this, that there were a lot of other separations um, when it comes to moral theology, besides, as we've seen, that separation between morality and spirituality. The modern ethicist that was trained in the, the manuals, who fo focused on sin and prohibition, also had an obligation in general, had other sort of separations that theology becomes sort of very fragmented. It was a long quote, but you'll be able to see it when I post the notes. The crucial point is the modern ethicist concentration on the idea and feeling of obligation, deontology, duty, laws, obligations, which gives rise to the organization of moral theology around laws, commandments, and norms. The moral world thus becomes a world of obligations and duties, precepts and prohibitions. And this is all there in the manuals. From this, there follows a separation between properly so-called ethics, dealing with obligations imposed on everyone, and what has been called asceticism, mysticism, and finally spirituality, forming a special area of perfection, supplementary and freely chosen. I guess it's sort of what we're talking about here. Here's moral theology, basically with prohibitions. We're not worried about you becoming perfect. If you want to do that, go study the interior life. Go study the manuals of spirituality. So it becomes separate. As we've seen, though, it has to be together, that our, our action is going to flow from our contemplation. A further result, he goes on, is an even greater separation between dogmatic theology, which has become more speculative, and its study of the documents of the faith and moral theology, totally practical, and its examination of laws and their application in individual cases of conscience. Finally, I should mention the sharp distinction made by the modern authors between philosophy and theology. 
This is so clearly defined that when we come upon something in philosophy, such as the teaching of a pagan author, we feel that it is necessarily alien to theology, even though a theologian may have incorporated it into a system. This philosophy and theology are constantly in conflict in our minds, stealing ideas from each other, and this inevitably works to the detriment of theology. So we're going to see this as we go on. It's necessary to have a more holistic approach rather than the separation between practical, speculative, spiritual, and moral. So we begin, though, to see sort of, uh, let's say, uh, changes at the beginning of the 20th century, but also, in a certain sense, a doubling down on certain other areas. And this is not necessarily in the moral and moral theology or in, in, let's say, the manuals, but in the approach that the church and members within the church begin to take. The Vatican began issuing more and more moral statements and clarifications at the start of the 20th century. Possibly this is a result of the publishing of the code, what was it, 1917? The magisterium teaching dominated heavily on canon law, uh, on, on modernism, and the way you need to think, and what you should read and what you shouldn't read. And so the priest really had to focus a lot on the law of the church. You still do. You need your canon law. But it became almost this was a sole emphasis. And so what happened was, as certain theolo- uh, historians will show, that moral theologians spent time or more time interpreting these teachings and these directives from the Vatican rather than reflecting on more pertinent moral issues. Uh, there was a sort of a, an ability to have a holistic approach, but moral theology and theologians receded more to canon law. And as a result could not address a lot of the critical issues of the day, uh, the rise of a certain atheism, types of philosophy, and other moral conundrums that were faced. And even more, and this is interesting if you do look at some of it, there was a lot of these manuals and the theologians in different journals getting caught up in minutiae, like big, long discussions of whether chewing gum broke the Eucharistic fast back and forth over this. Or should Catholics play the organ at non-Catholic services? And then there was one interesting one I found about the morality of dancing at masked balls. You know, should you dance in the first place? But you're wearing a mask, so you don't know who the person is. And, and all of these things, which I guess in a certain sense are, are legitimate discussions, and they could be interesting over a beer or whatever. <laughs> But you're getting so caught up in minutia, so caught up in minutia without addressing, as the world is burning around you in the beginning of the 20th century, that you're, you're not addressing what really needs to be addressed. However, there were some signs of change, for good and for bad. And we've seen some of it already. Again, the, the impact of World War II. Again, I think this is not just in moral theology, but in general. The manualist tradition could not speak to the destruction they witnessed. No one can speak to it. How do you make a law to, to talk about 10 million people dead? Nuclear bombs, the, the firebombing of Dresden. I mean, all these hor- horrific things that happened. And that's in World War II. Let's talk about World War I. The mass slaughter that no one had seen before. Also the question of 
Well, if the manuals were so effective, if this way of doing moral theology was so effective, why couldn't we restrain Nazism? Why did so many Christians and Catholics obey the Nazi regime? Which they did. How is that possible? So something must have gone wrong. There was also a noticed a tendency, as we've talked about before, towards minimalism. If all is just rules and, and you're looking at laws and obligations and what's going to cause you to sin and not sin or fall in mortal sin or not, well, hey, let me shoot for the minimum and just sort of get away with it. And, and these people weren't actually bad. It's just if, if, if the priests in the, in the confession and they were trained only to deal primarily with sin and obligation, well, then it's going to inculcate this certain attitude. Of course, psychology began to impact and that led 20th century theologians to, to sort of, after Vatican II and, and around that time, to dismiss a lot of what was right and wrong. But before that, really sort of dismissing a lot of culpability, uh, letting, leading them to believe that the average Catholic, because of their psychological state, was less mature and properly able to discern. But there were also changes, particularly in the German church, and again, you can read more about this at other times, where the Germans, as they tend to do, except when it comes to war and stuff, they began, the church lately began straying from the norm and wanting to, to focus on their own stuff. And, and this was good. They, we need to focus on discipleship. Jesus, why aren't we following the Lord? One of the, the, the massive textbooks produced before the council was Bernard Herring, who kind of went wonky a little bit later on, but The, the Law of Christ, this big thousand-page document um, of moral theology, basically trying establishing the Christocentrism of moral theology. And again, also, like, uh, more of a greater personalism. We've sort of seen that uh, in your philosophy, hopefully. A focus on the individual and his moral choices. Um, conscience and prudence. And that Christians should become mature, less dependent on confessors, less dependent on just the rules, to be able to make their own decisions, to be able to live in freedom and virtue. And there was just generally, that's, as I said, the spirit of renewal, a call to replace and move beyond the manualist tradition. Now, I, I've spent this time highlighting what's negative, but there was, a, there was good stuff out there, and there were good guys out there. How do, you know, how do we know there were good guys out there, and there were people who were thinking properly? Because they were there at the council. Votia was there. Ratzinger was there. Dan Lu was there. Delubach was there. These guys were, were beginning to talk and think about certain stuff. Uh, Journet, Cardinal Journet, who y'all should read if y'all haven't read him before. They helped influence the council, and the Lord, the Spirit was able to take a lot of their thinking and thoughts and bring it into and incorporate it into some of the documents. So, make sense? If y'all studied the history of dogma or any of this stuff yet, are y'all aware of this? We're going to get into where it all really came from after the, the, the height sort of of the Middle Ages, um, where there was a systematization of moral theology, but one that wasn't deontological, but one that was focused on virtues and, and growth as a person and the movement towards that ultimate end of happiness. So what about Vatican II? So Vatican II has been called, and even though it was not a dogmatic council, 
there was a strong, or nowhere there, there was only basically one mention of moral theology explicitly. Um, it, it had strong moral overtones, particularly in Gaudium et Spes, where the council called for a, substan- a return to a substantial biblical and Christological ethics. So a return to the sources, sources of scripture and the fathers and how they would have interpreted scripture, but also a real return to Jesus as a living encounter with a living person, the strong, strong, strong Christocentrism of the council and the strong personalism. So what are some of the moral themes that, that, that were dealt with, with in, in um, Vatican II? The first is the dignity of the human person. I mean, it's everywhere. The personalism of Carol Vatia, man created for communion, man only finds himself in gift. There was an emphasis on conscience. Look at Gaudium et Spes. Uh, 16, and freedom, especially freedom of religion, which is part of the problem if that pe- some people have with the council, Gaudium Spes 17, and, and Gaudium Spes really trying to focus on the, the problems of the day, a focus on practical, real things, marriage of the family, culture, socio-political and economic life, peace and and the the concordance of the nations and dealing also with these specific threats of the modern world. So there's a great moral overtone, but there's one explicit mention of moral theology. In the document on priestly formation, optatam totsius, number 16. Special care, so this is talking about reforming the seminaries, um, and, and what sort of the theology or, or teaching would be like. Special care must be given to the perfecting of moral theology. Its scientific exposition, nourished more on the teaching of the Bible, should shed light on the loftiness of the calling of the faithful in Christ. So again, we're looking at that, we're, going, we're, we're, we're taking this idea of asceticism and spirituality hey, we're focusing on scripture, we're focusing on the way to perfection, and we're focusing on Christ, and the obligation that is theirs of bearing fruit in charity for the life of the world. So there's the incorporation of the twofold commandment, everything we've talked about. But we've got to see it in context of the, the, the paragraph that came before, number 15. Let seminarians, that's you, gentlemen, learn to search for solutions to human problems with the light of revelation, scripture tradition, to apply eternal truths to the changing conditions of human affairs and to communicate such truths in a manner suited to contemporary man. Hey, y'all, y'all are pre- parish priests in the world. You're not monks. You're not locked up. And, and we're, we're shifting the attitude. It's no longer defensive. We've raised the bastions. Uh, maybe you raised them a little bit too much, but we need you to go out there and like Jesus did, encounter the people. Don't be guided by fear. It was very much against clericalism. Of course, afterwards it swung to the radical opposite direction, and we need to return to the middle. But it's like we've got to be able to take our moral theology and apply it to real-world situations that people are facing and to be able to encounter them. 
And so this is seen within the, the overall renewal of seminaries of the priesthood. And I think this is important for you all to understand, fellows. If you renew the, the council understood, if you renew the priesthood, you renew the church. If you renew the priesthood, you renew the church. And so they wanted a, a different style of priest. One, one that it wasn't all canon law and formality and, and liturgy. These things are important. We've got to go out and really encounter people. So while Vatican II didn't deny a, a true rich theology of the priesthood, it did have a more open approach to the world and formation than Trent did. Priests needed to be in the world, but not of the world. Prepared like a soldier to face the challenges of the modern world. Um, and to be able to, to dialogue, to be able to communicate the truths in a matter suitable contemporary man. So it's, 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 it's not just, it's positive. It's not just, this is what you're doing wrong. It's, hey, let me communicate the truth of who Jesus is and allow that beauty to attract uh, attract others. Now, there are other documents that came after the council that clarified this more, particularly a document in the early 70s from the Congregation for the Catholic Education on Formation of Future Priests, and a deeper push to, to go back to the sources, scriptures, the fathers, to do theology in the way of Aquinas. Uh, and so this is what we call for. And so that's what we're trying to do, and I guess in a certain sense have been trying to do for the past 60 years. Um, everybody has their own take, and there have been plenty of books written, uh, and as we'll see, the chaos after the council that led to John Paul II saying, all right, I'm writing a whole document on this, you people are crazy, particularly the Greg, Gorian in Rome. But, you know, we're, we'll get into that a little bit later on. So what we're going to do is we're going to study the history of moral theology by going through different periods. And this is a cursory overview. And again, I am I'm more sexual ethics and anthropology. I'm not a historian, but I've done this enough that I can give you the brief overview. But Pink Airs does a really good job if you find this interesting. So we're going to look at the fathers, moral theology of the fathers, then Thomas in the Middle Ages, the scholasticism, particularly focusing on the structure of the Summa, we're going to look at the rise of nominalism, William of Ockham, which most theologians and philosophers will say this is where the problem started, which led to the rise of casuistry and the manuals um, and the problems there. But we'll also look at, at sort of the good stuff that came with uh, Liguori and an attempt to sort of renew moral theology, which basically leads us up to where we were today. And then we're going to sort of jump ahead to after Vatican II and the complete and utter chaos that ensued. Uh, and we're going to look at sort of that chaos in light of Veritatis Splendor. That's why it's important if you read Veritatis Splendor. And then the last one we'll be looking at today. Um, as I, I said, I, I think there's still problems that existed before Veritatis Splendor. But I think there are some new issues that we face that we as church and priest we're going to have to address. So, two weeks of history, y'all. If you like history, it's going to be exciting. Dr. Zeldin likes history. He's excited. Uh, so why don't we take a break and come back in about 10 minutes. <laughs>